Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by my lovely friend, Julie Henningsen. Hi, Casey. Today, I have a story about some terrain that we've really never explored in the past. We're going to be talking about a story that happened in the desert canyons of Utah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we will tell the story of Justin, 31, and Jeremy Harris, 27, brothers and Utah natives. They were adventurers who enjoyed the outdoors and especially canyoneering in southern Utah's San Rafael Swell. They set out for what they expected to be an exciting outdoor weekend camping slash canyoneering trip and some brotherly bonding time, but they had no idea what was in store for them. The brothers would never forget their trip to Emory County on November 21st through 23rd, 2003. The events of that trip would change them forever. As the brothers were rappelling down a canyon in the Baptist Draw area, Justin fell, breaking his leg, prohibiting him from going any further. His brother would have to leave him injured and alone if there was any chance of survival. Everything seemed to be stacked against Jeremy as he attempted to get out of the canyon including a wrong turn that ended up adding hours to his travel out of the canyon in search for help. This sounds like a good one. I can't wait to hear the story. I love the um, San Rafael Swell. Have you spent any time there, Casey? I have not, but as I was going through the details of this story, I thought, I bet Julie has been here before. I just have this feeling. Yeah, it's such a cool place. It's unique. I've been there a few times, um, hiking mostly, canyoneering, and there's no other place like it. I can easily see how somebody might make a wrong turn. Did you do any rappelling into the canyons when you were there? Nope. We were all on foot navigating slot canyons. Mostly what I remember about it is just beautiful slot canyons, like the kind you would see in a calendar photo. Light shining in, red rock wall, narrow canyons that just go on and on. Really unique landscape. Yeah, that's really, really cool. One of the things I was thinking about is the canyoneering, especially in an area like this. It would be so easy to get lost. I cannot even imagine. You just take one wrong turn and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of obstacle land. Yeah, I think it can be pretty disorienting. Yeah, I was thinking about that game where there's the mouse that tries to get the cheese. That's what canyoneering seems like. 
Yeah, I can see it. I agree. There's a definite analogy. The San Rafael Swell is an enormous region of geological upheavals that have formed a dome of rock or swell in the surface of the Earth. The San Rafael Swell, often referred to as the Little Grand Canyon of Utah, is a vast expanse of rugged wilderness that covers over 2,000 square miles. It's a place where nature showcases its power and beauty in spectacular fashion. The terrain here is a breathtaking mix of towering red rock formations, deep canyons, and expansive plateaus. The swell's unique geological features were carved over millions of years by forces of wind and water. The result is a mesmerizing landscape of dramatic cliffs, slot canyons, as Julie described, and winding sandstone arches that beckon adventurers from all over the world. But exploring this remarkable terrain comes with its own set of challenges. The San Rafael Swell is known for extreme temperatures with scorching summers and bone-chilling winters. In the summer, daytime temperatures can easily go above 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.8 degrees Celsius, while winter nights can plunge well below freezing. One of the most captivating aspects of the swell is its intricate canyon landscape. These narrow winding canyons are a testament to their power of water over time. They offer a thrilling recreational ground for outdoor enthusiasts, particularly those who like to go canyoneering. Canyoneering in the San Rafael Swell involves navigating these narrow slot canyons, which requires rappelling oftentimes, hiking, climbing, and the scariest that I think I could imagine is swimming through water-filled passages and facing all sorts of other obstacles. There's waterfalls and pools, slippery rocks, and tight areas that you have to squeeze your body through. So I would imagine you couldn't have claustrophobia if you want to be canyoneering. Clearly, you have to have a lot of skill and physical strength, agility, but also endurance. I would imagine this would be a pretty significant workout to get from one point to another through a canyon like this. Obviously, it's really awesome to be able to experience the world in that way. The swell has these hidden wonders, and to be so up close would be really cool. It's an experience I would imagine that would be like nothing else. I guess the only thing that I could really compare it to would be going into a cavern or something. Another thing, too, is it's like you're walking through a maze in a lot of ways, probably with lots of dead ends. I would imagine, again, like we mentioned before, that being able to navigate would be of utmost importance. You would definitely want to go with someone who has a good sense of direction. Our story takes place in Goblin Valley State Park, which is on the southeastern edge of the San Rafael Swell. In this landscape, you're going to find other types of formations and these sandstone goblins that create an experience that is otherworldly and sometimes compared to Mars. Have you been to the Goblin Valley State Park, Julie? Yes, I've been there. It's just right there in the swell. It's hard to miss if you're going to the San Rafael Swell. And these rock structures that get that give it its name, the goblins, we call them dinosaur poops because they look like just giant poops mm -hmm. that stand upright. It's really also very unique. I know I said that about the slot canyons in the whole area, but Goblin Valley State Park specifically, just the series of plopped down rock formations that are taller than twice as tall as you are all next to each other and you can run around and play hide and seek in there it's a really cool spot that sounds really cool that would be a fun place to take kids 
as long as you keep an eye on them and they don't get lost. Justin and Jeremy grew up in Utah and spent their childhood years exploring the outdoors. The family was really outdoors-minded. The brothers were pretty close, and they enjoyed spending time together. And going outdoors was a really good way for them to bond and connect. They had done a lot of climbing and canyoneering together in the past, and they had quite a bit of experience between the two of them. Then rappelling and navigating and all of that stuff before. They knew what they were getting themselves into, I guess is what I'm getting at. At the time of the story, the brothers were living in opposite sides of the state. And Justin was very busy working in construction for his wife's family construction business. And at the time, he was already a father of four children at 31. Jeremy spent his time working in culinary arts, but he definitely enjoyed his time in the mountains. The brothers were very excited about their weekend outing. Obviously, they've been planning it for a really long time. They were filled with anticipation. They wanted to do this trip earlier. They've been planning it, like I said, for a while, but the weekends just were not aligning. So when Justin was available, Jeremy wasn't. So this pushed their trip all the way out to the end of November, which is a little bit questionable given the fact that temperatures are starting to dip. So for this trip, they were going to do this route that they had never done before. They planned on camping the first night and making the loop through three canyons, which was a distance of eight miles. They were going to exit at a standard fault line canyon exit, and they expected to reach the truck by nightfall on Saturday. So it's a pretty quick trip. They left on a Friday and headed to the south central part of Utah on the edge of the San Rafael Swell. The drive took them about two hours through Goblin Valley and into the center of the canyon country to Baptist Draw and the opening of Chute Canyon. The area was pristine and beautiful, but also they noted it was felt pretty remote. They set up their tent for the night and settled in at McKay Flats area. And when they awoke in the morning, they noticed that it was pretty cold for the desert. It was hovering around freezing temperatures. This didn't change their minds. They still decided to do the trip. They packed their bags, put their jackets on, and they headed towards the canyon. Jeremy said, we were very well prepared for the canyon. We knew what was in there. The first rappel was in Baptist Draw, which is a narrow slot canyon that drops into Upper Chute Canyon. They had to rappel several times from 20 to 80 feet. There's a sense of commitment here because once you're in there, there's only one way out, and that's climbing out, which is definitely a little bit higher stakes than walking up and walking back. I think that's true even on foot. Some of those draws and steep downhills, they're so much easier to get down than they are to climb back up. So even if you're not rappelling, a lot of times going down a draw is a commitment to finding another way out because you're not going to be able to turn back around and climb back up it. People get into trouble with that terrain because of that. And I did read a lot about pour-offs, which are basically rock formations where water's been pouring down for thousands of years. And you get these, it's almost like a slide that's really lumpy. And I would imagine that would be very difficult to navigate up and probably a pretty significant probability of falling. They marveled at the feeling of standing at the bottom rocks up against their back, looking up these narrow slots. And it was a really cool experience. The first thing that indicated that they might be in trouble is that the temperature became quite a bit colder in the afternoon. 
and it was cooling off quickly. Based upon the notes Jeremy had about the hike, he realized they were going slower than they needed to go if they were gonna make it to the car by nightfall. As a result of the temperature decline, the brothers began rushing. And in haste, Jeremy came down a drop off and landed in a wet icy pool and found himself with wet shoes and pants, putting him at risk for hypothermia. So now the pressure's really on. They're already behind, the temperatures are dropping, and now Jeremy is wet. It's about 5 p.m. and the sun is setting. It took them all day to get this far. They've only gone about four miles, so they're halfway there. They get to another obstacle. It's a 25-foot drop, and in the way is this giant chokehold, which is a large boulder wedge between the walls of the narrow canyon. It should be an easy obstacle, but as Justin attempts to get around it, he lost his footing, and Jeremy was anchoring. He just couldn't hold the weight of his falling brother. Justin's body slipped out to the rocky floor, which is at least a 25-foot drop. Then came an unsettling and startling loud crunching sound as Justin's leg made impact with the rock and he felt immediate severe pain and he began screaming at the top of his lungs, a sound that Jeremy had never experienced in all of his life. The screaming just went on and on. It was just blood curdling. Of course, Jeremy's above. He knows that Justin has a significant injury at this point. Can he see him? Can he look down and see his brother or is he out of sight? No, he can, he can visualize him at that point. He keeps on yelling, and finally Jeremy says, you got to stop. You got to stop screaming. <laughs> Please stop. He actually distracted him, which is a really good technique. It's actually a really good technique with kids, too, when they're screaming. But he just asked him, do you believe in God? And Justin said yes. And so Jeremy said, hey, why don't we say a prayer? Why don't we... Just take pause for a moment and say a prayer and we'll go from there. And so that's what they did. And that did seem to calm Justin down. Obviously, he still had severe pain. Jeremy made his way down and he assessed Justin's leg. He pulled up his pant leg and saw a startling amount of swelling. And at the time, they didn't really understand what was going on, but he had internal bleeding. I don't know if you remember this, Julie, but from an earlier episode, we were talking about tibial fractures and about how closed tibial fractures can create up to 500 to 1,000 milliliters of lost blood. This is pretty substantial injury. Yeah, I do remember that, actually. I remember being surprised by how much blood loss can occur there. Was this a tibial fracture in this case? It wasn't his femur. It was his tibia, yeah. He didn't have other injuries, but he didn't need to because this one was significant enough. It was closed. Clearly, he's not going to be able to walk out of there at this point. You know, he can't. There's just no way. The only way here for him to live is for Jeremy to leave him and to go call for help. This was obviously a difficult thing, but there was just no other way around it. Jeremy gave Justin some of his clothing and gave him the majority of the food. They took photos of each other with the Polaroid camera or with a um, disposable camera because they thought these might be our last moments together. They told each other that they loved one another they, and they had to part ways. So I was just thinking they pulled out the disposable camera. But then I remember this is 2003. So no cell phones, no GPS, no tech. They're packing around a cardboard disposable camera that definitely reminds me of what resources were like in situations like this back in the early 2000s. 
And Justin had a cell phone. In my mind, it's probably a flip phone, but it was in the vehicle. And who knows if they would have had cell service there anyway? Probably not. So I could see why they wouldn't even bring it with them. Jeremy told Justin to try to focus on the positive and try not to get into too many negative thoughts. Now Jeremy is in a position where he needs to walk four miles through a challenging canyon. And Justin was figuring it would take about four to eight hours for him to get out and about four to six hours for a rescue crew to come pull him out. Justin is alone and cold, and obviously he has a startling amount of pain. And it's the temperatures you know, dipping still. And he's just wondering to himself if there's any chance that he's going to make it out of there. He did make a lot of efforts to think positively, and he just tried to focus on the simple plan. My brother's going to go out, he's going to call for help, and I'm going to be rescued. Um, because of his internal bleeding, this just added to his struggle to stay warm. And his goal at that point was just to make it through the night. That's one of the concepts that we talk a lot about in wilderness medicine is this idea of internal bleeding. You know, the bleeding itself is one thing, but it so dramatically affects your ability to thermoregulate. People will get cold even on an 80 degree day when they have internal bleeding because they've lost their ability to keep themselves warm through good blood circulation. So I can't imagine with that kind of bleeding in the, those kind of cold temperatures at night, he must have been so cold. I have the chills just thinking about it, Julie, when you're describing that. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jeremy had been fortunate to experience dry conditions. Now, they haven't seen a ton of water up until this point. All of a sudden, he walks around a corner and he finds a pool. And then it's one pool after another pool. And he ends up having to swim through a lot of these things. The temperatures were 10 to 15 degrees below zero. Jeremy's having to peel frozen water off of his pants and things like that. Um, he just felt like this is a never-ending nightmare. He's screaming out in anger and calling to God or anyone who might hear him. He's just going through this surreal and horrible experience. Um, so remind me, who's the older brother? The injured one or the one going for help? Yeah, Justin is the older brother. He's the one with the injury. And Jeremy is the younger brother who's going for help. So baby bro has one shot to save his older brother's life here. Hey, and I was kind of wondering if he would ever even have made it through this experience if he didn't have the life of his brother riding on his shoulders. He had actually planned the trip. I think he felt very much responsible for what was happening. On a total side note, as I was researching for this story, I was wondering if anyone ever would get caught in these water pools. And I actually found a story that I'm not going to go into too much detail because I want to cover it on another episode. But there was a young man that got stuck in a pool. He was trying to put his backpack up on a ledge to climb out and he couldn't actually he couldn't get out of the water. So he did eventually get rescued. But that was something that was on my mind as I was thinking about these pools is what if you can't get out of it? What if there's nowhere to climb up? And the water's cold, so it wouldn't take very long to die. Just get hypothermic pretty quickly. I can't think of a lot of other experiences that would be more terrifying than that. So as Jeremy is swimming through these slots, 
he loses his guidebook. So now he has to rely on his memory. And that's obviously a difficult thing to do when you're dehydrated and exhausted and hungry and freezing cold. He spent some time looking for it, but there was just, he didn't have the time. And he was going out a different, it was a loop, right? He was going out a different route than how they came in. He wasn't backtracking. Yeah, that's such a challenge. Yeah, and it's dark. So he has the light of his headlamp and that is all to guide his way. It's just unbelievable he was even able to make it. But he kept going and then he realized he went the wrong direction. He had no idea how long it had been since he took the wrong turn, but he had to go back up. And he had to climb up five different pour-offs and one of the pour-offs took him multiple attempts. And he figured it may have taken him over an hour to get up that one particular pour-off. He was so wet and cold, but all he could think about was saving his brother. He didn't want to take a break, but then he realized he had to at one point. So he started a fire and he briefly fell asleep next to it. But he had a rude awakening when his clothing became engulfed in flames. He realized quick enough that he was able to put out the fire. And I think he probably decided at that point, all right, well, I might as well keep moving. Um, Jeremy had no water. At one point, he attempted to melt snow in the water bottle under his armpit, but none of it melted. I don't know what the safety of the standing water is in those canyons, but it's probably not a good idea to drink it. I don't know. I would imagine I would get to the point where I'd be desperate enough to drink that water. And, but maybe it's sandy and silty. What do you think, Julie? I just think I would, I know I would think if I'm so thirsty, I'm going to just drink this and then I'll get a prescription for metronidazole for all the giardia and crypto peridium or whatever the heck I'm putting into my GI tract in that water. I'd worry about that later. Not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's that's where my mind would go. Especially because you know that your time is limited and you figure probably there's an incubation period. So you're going to get out of there before you start vomiting, hopefully. Yep, exactly. I like the way you think there, Julie. Oh, 24 hours, about 24 hours after he left his brother around 2.30 p.m. on Sunday, Jeremy finally surfaced from the canyon. And when he got to the car, he was hallucinating. He was dehydrated. He was exhausted. He was hypothermic. He starts the vehicle up. He gets the heater going, opens up Jeremy's cell phone, and the battery is dead. Thankfully, there was a charger. So he charged the phone, noted that there was not a cell phone signal, but he, when he got up on top of the vehicle and stood up, he had enough of a signal that he could call 911. One thing that I was thinking is, what if the car didn't start? That would just be my luck. Like, the car battery is dead. I and mean, when it's that cold, it wouldn't even be surprising if the car didn't start. He got so lucky. I wouldn't have been surprised after he lost his guidebook and had to swim and was in freezing cold ice water. You know, if you imagine what more could possibly go wrong. That's the next logical problem. I'm glad the car started. Me too. The other thing is that he could have just got further and further lost, or he could have become injured. If he got injured, it would be over. They would have both died. Yes. And in the condition that he was, it's amazing he didn't get injured. Yeah. Just think about the physical exertion at that point. He's been going all night, but also he'd been going the whole day before that. So he hasn't had any sleep except for a few minutes by the fire. He's just been going strictly on adrenaline at this point, like fumes of adrenaline at this point. The rescuer crews come and get Jeremy. They know how exhausted he looks. They couldn't get in an IV because he was just too dehydrated. 
Um, they transported him by ambulance to the hospital while rescue crews started to look for his brother. But he was released four hours later. So he was in actually really great condition considering what he had been through. Now back to Justin in the canyon. During his wait for rescue, Justin noted that his leg was becoming huge. It was inflating like a balloon. He had blisters and clear fluid that's running down his leg. Julie, wager any bets about what's coming next. What is the diagnosis? Any ideas? Uh, compartment syndrome? Infection? Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Not infection yet, but compartment syndrome, yes. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Justin had such horrible pain and he felt like his skin was freezing. He realized he needed to do something to keep from getting frostbite. He would eat a little bit, move as much as possible, and even occasionally try to stand up. Justin was challenged to hold on to hope and he was concerned about his brother and his brother's physical limitations because Jeremy had a, a total hip replacement at the age of 15. And that's a whole nother thing about that I didn't mention. He had to make all these jumps and things like that. So this whole time that Jeremy was trying to get out, he was having hip pain. One thing that kept Justin positive was he heard this squeaking sound in the middle of the night and this little you know, something crawling around and there was a little brown mouse that kept him company for a little bit. And he fed the mouse a little bit and talked to it for a while. And this interaction kept him feeling more positive and helped him stay awake. When the morning came, it was warmer on Saturday morning, but the afternoon passed and then the sun started to go down again. And man, that had to be the longest day of his life, just waiting for rescue. He was wondering all day if his brother had an accident or if he died in the canyon. He had just expected to be found by that point. He started to get really angry. He was crying to himself alone in the canyon. Everything was just telling Justin to lay down and go to sleep, but he fought back to get to his wife and children. And he was worried that if he fell asleep, that would be it. He continued checking on his leg and started wondering about shock. He kept reciting birthdays of all of his family members to keep himself awake. Basically anything to fill the time and keep his brain going. Justin obviously didn't have any way of knowing that his brother had made it out alive at this point. Meanwhile, Emory County Sheriff's Office is looking for him. They're hiking around in the remote area. They're walking around on these ledges. They're yelling down into the canyon. When they got the report from Jeremy, Jeremy couldn't really tell them where Justin was, which made this probably even more difficult. But I would imagine that Jeremy was just beyond done at the point at which he was talking to search and rescue. Justin heard something from above. The rescue crews were throwing down something with an explosive, so it would make a louder sound. And Justin at first thought that he was hallucinating, but it was actually the search and rescue crew above. When he finally recognized he'd been found by the rescue crew, it felt like a dream. He just was completely beside himself. And at that point, he also found out that his brother made it out alive and was okay. Right, the rescue team had to drill in some bolts at the top because there were no other places to anchor. Justin was 500 feet below the rescue team. The team began to rappel down the canyon. It took them three rappels in the dark. And they were not able to see where they were going. The descent into the canyon took them all night, and they reached him at 4.30 in the morning. Sheriff Lamar Gaimon stated that he was, quote, better than we expected. One of the EMTs was named Diane Chandler, and she was also a volunteer. 
She was one of the first responders. She pulled up Justin's pants and realized that this was a significant injury. They really needed to get him out of there quickly. She was pretty unsettled by the sight of his leg, but tried to play it down a little bit and engaged him in conversation about his family and other things, trying to redirect him. And he was pretty smart and he understood that's what she was doing, but he just went along with it anyway. So back to compartment syndrome. For all of those of you who don't know what it is, uh, it's a serious medical condition that can occur when there's increased pressure within a closed anatomical compartment, which is a space enclosed by fascia. This increased pressure can lead to reduced blood flow, nerve compression, and tissue damage within the affected compartment. The reason that compartment syndrome is such a big deal is because you lose the blood flow to the area. So you can have severe complications, including permanent damage to the muscles and nerves and blood vessels within that compartment. And sometimes you get tissue death or gangrene and end up with limb loss. And in the experience that I've had, it seems like pain is a huge part of compartment syndrome. When people have it, it causes severe pain. But when you have an injury like that to begin with, I don't know how you would differentiate it when you're experiencing it. A tool that I've used in the past is the five P's of compartment syndrome. The five P's, pain, and it's pain out of proportion with the injury. So pain beyond what you would expect. Pallor is one. Pulselessness, you lose distal pulses, like a um, pedal pulse in the foot goes away because there's no blood flow. Paresthesia, which just is changes in sensation, numbness, tingling, loss of sensation. And then uh, paralysis, you can't move it the way you used to. The five P's of compartment syndrome. But I think pain is the biggest one. Pain out of proportion with the injury. But how can you have pain out of proportion with the injury that he already experienced where he has multiple fractures in his tibia? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I can't imagine living with that for 48 hours. Yeah, you're never going to be like, oh, come on. That's just, that's a light injury. That's a minor flesh wound. Get over it. That, <laughs> that injury is going to be painful. Compartment syndrome or not. Right. So again, like I mentioned, the rescuers set up a pulley and belay system at the top. Once they got to him, they tried to give him an IV, but they realized that the bag of saline was frozen. So they got him into the basket as quickly as they could and start, started going up with them. One of the rescuers actually sat in a harness above him to guide the basket as they pulled them up to keep rocks from falling down on him or keep him from swinging into the canyon wall. Even though there were a few obstacles they had to overcome to get that basket up, they made it up without any incidents. Meanwhile, this is really cool. From the hospital, Jeremy was able to watch the rescue of his brother on the news live as it was happening, which I cannot even imagine the amount of relief he would be feeling in that moment. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. What a relief. How good he must have felt in that moment that to see his brother getting pulled out of there. He probably felt like he had won the lottery. The stakes were so high and the likelihood of his brother living with that type of injury for two nights in those temperatures, it's just unreal. Justin was put in touch with his wife right after the rescue. His wife, Trisha, said that people had asked if she had a feeling whether or not he was alive and she had no feeling either way. And she thought he was dead. She kept asking the sheriff's office if people could live through that cold of temperatures. And when she initially heard that he was in the canyon, she just broke down. So I would imagine she also was ecstatic and elated to hear from him. 
Justin was rushed by helicopter to Intermountain Hospital in Salt Lake City, and Trisha, his wife, rushed to see him. In the hospital, Jeremy was able to see Justin and tell him thank you for everything that he did and for not giving up. Again, Jeremy felt responsible about it, and he was just grappling with the whole thing. When they took the camera to get the photos developed, which what a weird thought it is to picture getting photos developed, they were looking at the pictures that they had taken before they parted, and there was this hazy-looking image and the picture with Justin, and so he said, maybe that's my guardian angel. Although the guardian angel saved him in the canyon, the guardian angel unfortunately was not able to save his lower leg. That is cool and a little creepy about the image in the photo. And yeah, I saw it coming about the lower leg. It would be actually more surprising if he was able to spare it. So Justin went through multiple surgeries, but again, there was just not enough blood flow to his leg and they ended up having to amputate. And he spent two months in the LDS hospital. Shortly after the rescue, Justin found out that his wife was pregnant and they named their fifth baby, a girl, after the search and rescue heroes. They named her Emery Faith. That's beautiful, because it was the Emory County Search and Rescue. Do I have that right? Yes, that is correct. So I was thinking the first problem they had here was the time of year. It was getting cold. The second problem was the length of the trip, eight miles. So if you can just imagine like hiking all day long and finding out you've only gone four miles, um, I would imagine that hiking this distance would be the equivalent of hiking 30 miles and not having all those obstacles. Um, then the third thing was that Jeremy got wet and the temperatures were dropping. So even though they were knowledgeable and prepared, there was just so much pressure that I think led ultimately to Justin's fall. And we'll never know if those things set the stage for it. Sort of that was what precipitated it. And in closing, again, I'm just impressed that Justin made it through two nights in a freezing canyon, but also equally impressed that Jeremy was able to find his way out of the canyon without a map after getting lost. So anyway, I think that's just one of the most impressive parts of the story. He was obviously extremely motivated to save his brother. Okay, Casey, so here's the question. Aside from losing a leg, if you were in this scenario, it was you and I, would you rather be Jeremy or Justin? Injury uh, or rescuer? I think that I would rather be the rescuer, even though there's a whole lot of responsibility on your shoulders. But the thing is, you have something to do. And I think the hardest thing in these kind of scenarios is when you're sitting around in tragedy and there's no action that you can actually take to get your mind off of the imminent possibility of death. And just that painful experience of thinking about what the other person might be going through to save your life and whether or not they make it out and not being able to answer that question would be very difficult. So that's my answer to that. What about you? Well, your answer convinced me. It's the same. Yep. The, your biggest enemy in this situation is going to be your mind and you got nothing but time to think if you're sitting there with a broken leg. So I'd rather be on the move. Clearly, canyoneering is a sport that requires a lot of preparation, including having the proper knowledge and the gear and the mapping. If it is a sport that interests you, there's many courses that you can take to master the skills that are needed. This is not the thing to do as a total novice. The situation with these two brothers makes you realize that we should all be thinking about who it is that we're asking to go into the wilderness with. Are they resourceful? Do they have survival skills? Now, when things get tricky, would your outdoor partner go the extra mile to save your life? Um, it's not something I've really thought about a lot, but it's something that we should be considering. It's a good point, Casey. 
You want to be discriminating when you go into these challenging situations. Who's by your side? Yeah. So take your clueless friend to coffee and not into the canyons, okay? That's the moral of the story. (laughs) But you might want to consider it. That sums up our episode this week of the Crux True Survival Stories. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you find our discussions on survival strategies, tips, and real-life stories both informative and inspiring. To stay connected with us and support our podcast, please follow us on Instagram at The Crux Podcast. You can also reach out to us via our email, thecruxsurvival at gmail.com with feedback or questions or suggestions for future episodes. Your support means the world to us, so please consider rating and reviewing our podcast on your preferred platform. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to share our Instagram posts on your stories or recommend us to a friend who shares your interest in adventure in the outdoors. We look forward to bringing you more content in the future, so stay tuned, stay prepared, and always remember that knowledge is the ultimate survival tool. The end. <laughs> <laughs>